I want to speak this morning uh, for a few minutes about what it's uh, like to be a father in this place, and I want to spur on our families. I want to spur on our dads. I want to spur on our brothers and our sisters um, in a time which is pretty complicated. I feel like this Father's Day is probably like a Father's Day we've never experienced before. Maybe you've got... uh, kids far away and you have some concern for their well-being. You've got some concern even for their health or their safety. Or I guess for others of us as families, we've got kids who are right at home and maybe we're more concerned about our health and our well-being and our safety after all the different weeks of lockdown that we have been going through. But today what I want to do is I want to spur on our families. I want to say to them, you guys are great. We love you. We're so grateful to have people of all different ages in vintage Pasadena. And we want to bless you. We want to encourage you. And you know, as we've looked through this book of Colossians over the last weeks, it's been so amazing to see every week as we've opened up the next little passage of Colossians that it's spoken exactly to this moment. It's spoken exactly to this time and this space. But then uh, as I opened up the passage for this week, at first I was super excited because for Father's Day it said instructions for Christian households. Uh, And then though, as I looked at it a little bit closer, I panicked, absolutely panicked. Because as I read through the words in Colossians, I thought there's no way God, there's no way on the weekend of Juneteenth, no way in the middle of all that we're dealing with in our African-American community right now that I can read this passage out, let alone speak to it. And so if I'm really honest with you, and I'll just be honest, all week I've been going backwards and forwards about whether to change the passage, whether to do like a last minute U-turn, whether just to kind of avoid this one. But for a number of reasons, I've felt like I really needed to stick with today's passage. And I want to ask you as we go through it that you would stick with me as we go through today's passage, because you will see in a minute that whilst on the surface this looks difficult, it looks challenging, that under the surfaces as we unpack it, the words of Paul to us as a community are so beautiful, are so helpful, that speak so wonderfully to the moment that we find ourselves in. And so I hope that it will be a blessing. So let's dive straight in. Hold on to your seats. Don't hide behind the sofa just yet as we listen to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians three eighteen through 25. Wives, submit to your husbands, as this is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eve service as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Ouch. I wonder what triggered in your mind as you heard Adam speak those words. Maybe you heard this. Wives, submit to or even obey, depending on your translation, your husbands. Children, always obey your parents. And even bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Or if you've got a different translation, you might have even horrifically heard the word slaves in there. How can we use this passage today? It's like some terrible uh, guide to family life that was written 100 years ago. When Laura and I got married 12 years ago, there was a little book that was doing the rounds. Uh, It got into every best man speech of every wedding that we went to for a while. It was a joke, you'll be pleased to know. But the book was called Don'ts for Wives of 1913. 
Um, it contained fantastic, wonderful trinkets about how to be uh, a married couple, um, particularly advice for wives, including this. Don't be out if you can help it when your husband gets home for his day's work. Don't let him have to search your large house for you. Listen for the latch key and meet him on the threshold. Don't greet him on the door with a list of dreadful crimes committed by your servants during the day. Don't forget that if he's feeling nervy to watch out if the tea habit is getting too strong in him, nerves are often due to too much tea as they are to too much worry. And don't fuss over your husband. Mistaken attentions often annoy a man dreadfully. If he comes out late from work and requires a quiet dinner sitting alone, he doesn't want you jumping up and down like a jack in the box, saying something like, would you like more pepper, darling? It's terrible, isn't it? I feel like using my special prophetic spy cameras into our homes right now, I can see that all the men are secretly sitting on the couches going... Sounds kind of good. And all the wives are going, you're on the couch tonight, darling, if you're lucky. But if you look at the words that Paul really uses, if you look at the instructions that Paul offers to dads, maybe you would have heard something else because these are the words that I want to focus on today. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord, that the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so I want to offer to you today three things to spur on our dads, to spur on our families, to focus us back on the things that are really important. And, and whether you're a dad or you're a mom or you're a brother or a sister or you're a worker or you're entirely single, whatever your situation is, I hope that these will be words that will inspire and bless us today. So let's go in. And I'm going to do them in a slightly different order to the way that Paul speaks these words to us. First one is this. Love God to how you work. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now let's just get the really difficult thing out of the way, because if I don't, you'll be stuck on it for a while. And that's this, Paul in no way in this moment or in any other passage in the Bible says that slavery or even what we have here today, this is kind of this thing called bond sermons, is okay. He never says it's okay. In Paul's time though, slavery was absolutely normal in their society. At times it looked like the horrific form of human trafficking that we still see on our news occasionally around the world like the things that we've been learning about the African slave trade over the, the last hundreds of years in this country as well. But at other times, uh, slavery looked very differently. Slaves could be lawyers, they could be doctors, they could be people who were, uh, had to be part of a household. They could be literally like brothers and sisters, servants in a household. That's where that word bond servants came from. Now, neither form, Paul says, are okay. I'm very grateful that as an English church leader, I come from this long line of people like William Wilberforce and others who have and will continue to work in these areas to make sure that slavery is no longer reality in our world ever. But Paul acknowledges that when he's speaking to this group of people, probably up to half of the people who were the audience in this passage would have been slaves. Some of the leaders in the church would have been in some form of lesser or greater slavery. 
And the point that Paul wants to make is not whether slavery is okay, but it's this. The, Paul, the point that Paul wants to say that in all situations of life, particularly when we find ourselves in places that are not okay, in situations when we're struggling, when our freedoms have been reduced, when we feel persecuted in a larger or a greater way, lesser or a greater way, that we always have a choice. We have a choice about how we respond. Either we can react we can react when we feel like we don't have what we need. You know, over these last weeks, probably we've all felt this on some ways, maybe like the ability not, well, we can't travel anymore and we can get frustrated about being pent up. Maybe about simply the ability that we don't have to go to work. I don't know if I've been the only person who's been after breakfast saying, hey honey, have a great day and then walked straight back to my bedroom and sat down at my computer and carried on my day's work and then come back out later in the day. Maybe like we've lacked the freedom to even be on our own in moments, or we've lacked the freedom to see other people. There are always these moments, aren't there, when we can feel like we don't have what we need. Even when we can feel like someone angers us or treats us badly, says something that we find insulting in some way, and we can lash out. We can immediately hit back, hit back the email, hit back the text message. We can like charge in there. When someone's shouting, we can shout even louder. You know, we can get on the defensive. Or Paul says, we can respond. We can respond realizing that whatever we do in our work, whatever we do in our actions can actually be worship. Paul says that the audience of our life's work is primarily Jesus, not other people that when we work, we are working for the Lord and not for people because the master that we serve is Christ. Um, I used to run a business when I left university. I first of all set up my own business and then transferred to uh, work for a mad multimillionaire. He was a shareholder in a whole bunch of different businesses and he was a guy who had a fearsome reputation in our industry. At times, he could be lovely. He could be nice. He could be extremely generous. And other times, just on a dime, he could lash out. He could be abusive. He could be bullying. He had this reputation uh, in our industry that we worked in of falling out with everyone. So much so that it would be very normal for me to be in the middle of a business deal and then to suddenly get a phone call from him saying, I hear that you're doing a deal with this company or this person. I hate that person. Never speak to them ever again and then slam down the phone. In his wider business empire in the six, seven years I was there, so many people came and went. Most people didn't last very long at all. I became convinced that God was calling me to be there, to lead a couple of these businesses for good. And the reason I felt that was because every time I said, God, I'm done, I've had enough, I just want to get out of here, God would just say, just hold on, just stay, just love. And I came to kind of coin a phrase. It's a phrase which probably doesn't translate very well to California, so you're just going to have to hold on with me a minute. But you know, like in baseball, you have a round bat. Well, if you've ever come across the sport of cricket, which is basically baseball for extremely posh English people and other people around the world, then basically the bat has a, f- has a flat edge on the front. And what happens is as the ball comes in, you need to hit it, and you can choose whether to hit it on the edge of the bat or the front of the bat. You can choose to hit it high or low. You've got a lot of different control and options. And there's this phrase which is called to play with a straight bat. And to play with a straight bat means as the ball comes in, you take a step forward and you hit the ball straight back the way that it came from. And what it means is, is, a phrase, is it's phrase to play honestly, a phrase, a, a a way to play humbly, a way as someone comes in with you with an insult or comes in with you with injustice just to play the ball straight back to them, to play back. And I found over time 
with this guy, that as the insults would fly, the aggression would fly, the accusations would fly, I found that if I just started to knock the ball back and say, well, actually, this is what I did. This is what I didn't do. This is what that person did. As I started to learn to play justly and humbly, and sometimes I got it so wrong, I found that he actually had nowhere to go in his accusations, that often the conversation would then go silent and the conversation would move on. And over time, as I stuck in that environment, as I stayed in that place, it gave me opportunities to pray with the people who worked for me, gave me opportunities to share my faith, to talk about Jesus in a way that I wouldn't have done if I'd have just bolted for the exit. Now, Paul is never condoning that we should be victims in any respect, but he's reminding us that whatever we do, we should work for it with all of our hearts because we're working for Christ the Lord. And he uses that term Lord seven times in this different passage. And he promises that not only is it worship, but actually as we work for the Lord, what we'll do is we'll get benefit. We'll get benefit maybe not on earth, maybe not in the situation, maybe not in the pain and the grief of the moment, but we will get benefit because we are storing up treasures in heaven. And Paul says that is a powerful and a beautiful thing. You know, in this coronavirus time, maybe, maybe you've been let go. Maybe you're now living and working in your bedroom, frustrated, living with less money, living in uncertainty. Maybe your freedoms have been retracted. But I wonder this, what would it look like as brothers and sisters in Christ if in this moment, in our housework, in our work in offices, in our work in the entertainment industry, what would it look like if we focused all our efforts on worshiping God? What would it look like to go in tomorrow morning's meeting praying? to see it as an encounter with the Holy Spirit, to listen for what God might want to say to the people that we're going to meet along the work journey over the next week. What would it look like if we saw it as a way to store up treasures in heaven? Paul says, love God, work heartily in all that you do. Second thing Paul says is this to dads, to husbands, love your wife, love your wife. Like I feel like the Bible gets a pretty, pretty bad reputation sometimes for some of its teaching. Um, and, and yet, in spite of some of the things that we kind of miss, miss here, that the Bible has this beautiful high view of marriage. It loves marriage, even though people in the Bible get it wrong spectacularly at times. The Bible lifts marriage up as a beautiful thing between husband and wife as this creation. And despite that, you know, we, we find that marriage is under attack. We find that marriage in our society, marriage numbers are dropping, divorce numbers are increasing. You know, so many of us, if we're honest, including our family, live with the pain of divorce in some way. There is such a sense of brokenness. And, and when Paul speaks about marriage, we can hear these words like obey, obey, wives, obey your husband. It sounds kind of outdated. It sounds old fashioned. But yet Paul has something radical to say about marriage, something beautiful. You see, in the culture of Paul's time, women were treated really badly, really badly. Uh, the Jewish people had a prayer, which they prayed, and it went like this. Praise be to God that he's not created me a woman. And the reason that they had this prayer was not because they were just being outrageous, but because they knew that women had so little rights in that community. Widows had little access to property or inheritance. If you think about Ruth, or you think about the early church in Acts, 
Any money that a woman would have earned belonged to her husband. Men could divorce their wives with just literally a bit of paper and no reason at all. Women could never divorce their husband, even in cases of abuse or anything else going on at all. And so when Paul writes these words, husband, love your wives and don't be harsh with them, he's actually saying something transformational. The word that Paul uses, the word for love, is the word agape. And agape means this. It means the unselfish and sacrificial love for another person. The unselfish and sacrificial love. You know, Paul says to the wives, yeah, obey your husbands. Submit to them in things. And he says that. Why? Because he then says to husbands, by the way, guess what you have to do? Is you have to lay down your life. You have to submit. You have to sacrifice yourselves for your wives. I mean, yes, there is a leadership role for husbands. Yes, there is a place of being head of the family and those kind of things. But Paul talks about it in the same terms that he talks about Jesus and God. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, 6 to 7, Jesus, uh, the description of Jesus is this, who being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness and sacrificing himself for us. The whole picture that the Bible has of marriage is of mutual submission and love for one another. It's not of dominance. It's not of demanding that the other person matches our standards and then it will be okay. It's realizing that first and foremostly, it comes from us. It comes from our place of loving another. Um, we have this great intern, Matt, of Vintage Pasadena. We love Matt. Uh, you very rarely get to see Matt on a camera because he's always behind the camera or behind the screen. He makes a load of the videos that we make. He helps uh, lead our young adults and uh, our um, work with teenagers. Um, but Matt and I were talking a few weeks ago about the Enneagram. And I know some people love the Enneagram. Some people absolutely hate the Enneagram. All I know about the Enneagram is that whenever you're in a Christian conversation nowadays, you get this kind of phrase like, oh, that's such a type one behavior. Um, and I, until this week, had no idea what that may, meant at all. Um, but Matt was talking about the Enneagram, and he was saying how he, he's a type three in Enneagram. And then he, he said, oh, well, Ben, by the way, you're a type three. And I thought, I have no idea what a type three is. I'll take that as a compliment. It probably isn't. And so I went home, and I looked at what a type three is, and then did the test and realized that Matt was right. I am a type three. And a type three, if you don't know, is basically the person who was always in charge. The person who always wants to get stuff done, is always really pushing hard to get things finished. And I read through this whole long online description of a type three. And then I read this, wor- this words about, um, that said, the danger is sometimes, for type threes and for many other types as well, that we can see people around us as tools to get stuff done. We see people around us as tools to get stuff done. How easy is it for us to do that as husbands? How easy is it for us to do that as bosses or workers, as friends even? And then I came across this phrase from Spencer Kimball. Love people, not things. Use things, but don't use people. It's easy, isn't it, for our spouses to feel like, oh my goodness, you know, like they should, you know, they're just there to look after the kids or they're just there to kind of like make money or they're just there to kind of, you know, provide food or whatever it might be or our husbands are just there to like, you know, provide stability or security or like whatever it might be. And yet Paul invites us to treat our spouses, our friends, those that we love with a self-sacrificial, self-other-preferring uh, love. Isn't that important? in this moment in our society. And then finally, Paul says this to dads, to moms, to grandparents, love, love your kids, love your kids. 
If you're like me, uh, you will probably secretly love the idea that your kids are supposed to obey you in every moment. I feel like maybe I'm, maybe I'm not the only dad who has this secret view, you know, like Mary Poppins, uh, where the, the dad comes home from the bank and the two kids are, like, the, the kids are lined up and they've all got their pajamas on and they've all got out of the bath and they're just lined up perfectly and the father comes in, they say, good evening, daddy, how are you? And all that kind of stuff. Maybe I'm the only dad who secretly wishes that my family life was like that. But yeah, actually, Paul says to fathers this. He says, fathers, don't provoke your children in case they become discouraged. The word that's often used is the word aggravate instead of the word provoke, and um, it means this, to irritate by exacting commands and perpetual fault-finding and interference. You know, I, I, I love my kids. I love William and Chloe. I love them when they're good. I love them when they're really struggling and fighting with one another or fighting with us. I love them all the time. But I know that I have to discipline them. But I know that the Bible's really clear that I have to kind of put down boundaries and I have to do all that kind of stuff. But the question I've been asking myself um, slightly painfully this week as I've been reading this is, am I someone who aggravates my kids? Am I a safe place for my kids? Do I reduce their stress levels? Do I increase their stress levels? When my kids start shouting, do I shout back louder? Do I allow them to have a moment to calm down? I was listening a few weeks ago to a study that uh, came out. It was a very famous um, organization researching family behaviors. And they found that over the last decade, anxiety, depression, mental health issues amongst children has been rocketing. And people don't know exactly what's going on, but they're pretty certain that it partly has things to do with screens and the internet and that whole world that kids live in now. But it also has to do with the skyrocketing expectations that kids have put on them by schools, by parents, by those kind of things. And not just in an academic space, you know, my kids started getting tested for things when they were like two years old, but also um, because of after school clubs, because of like the endless teams, because the endless kind of like music programs or different things that we put them in where they have to compete, where they have to meet a certain standard. And this study which came out recently showed that through coronavirus, kids' mental health has improved radically. Anxiety, fear, depression amongst children has gone down even though we're in a global pandemic. And they said that the reason that this has happened is because suddenly kids can be kids. Kids can be at home with their parents because suddenly those expectations of having to constantly perform in these 12 different spaces at once have disappeared. You know, I find it so easy to demand perfection of my kids, to demand that they do really well at things. But am I someone who they will come to when they've done something wrong and they know that they will be accepted, to know that they will be loved, to know that this is safe? Or do I just charge in when they're not behaving as they should be in a perfect world? You know, we're supposed to be people who raise adults and not raise children. And we raise adults by making them feel loved, safe, secure. We invest so much of our time and our energy at Vintage Pasadena in those moments. Paul says to us, as grandparents, as mums, as dads, as fathers, as brothers, he says to them, focus in and love. And love in such a way that is always about our actions which prefer another. As I close, I just want to say this. I want to say that, you know, in this moment, there's so much triggering going on. You know, people are, are hearing things, they're angry about things. In a political space, we've got all sorts of things going on right now. And it's so easy to look at another person and go, why didn't they do that? 
You know, whether it's our kids, whether it's our spouses, whether it's people in our workplaces, whether it's people in the wider society, why didn't they do what I needed them to do so that I would be okay? It's easy to, in our relationships where we focus on another action, another's actions rather than our own. We conjure up lists that the other person does not fulfill or satisfy in us, and then we resolve to treat people poorly because they aren't fulfilling that thing that we want in our lives. However, God is concerned about our own conduct toward others. And you know what? And this is just going full circle back to the beginning of the passage. Paul says, if we were to behave like that, if we were to love others sacrificially and care for their well-being, would there be slavery in the world? Heck no. Would there be racism in the world? Heck no. There would be equality and love and fairness as we focus our lives. But I know that can be tough. I know if you're a dad today, maybe you're really struggling. If you're a mum today, maybe you're really you're struggling. If you're in a family which has got some degree of brokenness or pain in it, maybe you're really struggling. That the, the standards that you really know are out there are almost feel impossible to attain with the stress levels that are going on in our world right now. And so I want to finish by praying. I want to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit to come. I want to pray that you would just be so overwhelmed with God's love that where you feel a failure, and don't worry, I feel like a failure in every one of those spaces almost every day, that you would hear the healing, loving, filling voice of the Holy Spirit, filling you up, giving you the power to love, to serve, to sacrifice your good for the sake of other people. So will you pray with me?